Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's the one that was holding down the ship, the fort, if you will, last week. I don't think you want to hold down a ship. You don't? Well, it'd go underwater. Uh, depends on what ship you're sailing. Okay. Right? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Why do I always got to bring you're your big mix, brain into mix this? Mixing the metaphors. Just rock bro. and roll with me, buddy. That's what Let's people, hold down that ship. That's what people like about this podcast is that we just roll with it. We do. You know what I mean? Whatever comes our way, I we rock and we roll. I think they also like it when I give you a hard time sometimes. I think they do. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. <laughs> I was lonely last week. It was just me and Josh, but we had a fun guest. Yeah, I, I watched some of the reels. Seems like he was a very knowledgeable, fun guy and, and yep. doing wonderful things in the world. Yeah, and you know what was weird is after the show, he pulls out pictures. He was hanging out with Yoko Ono in her New York apartment. Hmm. We could have talked about that on the show, but he didn't bring it up. Well, I, don't, I think Yoko Ono is probably not the most popular person out there. She broke up the Beatles. Wow, Yoko Ono's great. She's an activist. It's all, uh, she's awesome. I think she's pretty polarizing. Well, depends on if you're John or Paul. Well, I think, <laughs> I think any of them are probably yeah. Saying, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I was par- partaking in the Alema Harrington Recovery Golf we Classic. We mentioned that. How'd it go? It was amazing. You know, what was cool about it was uh, 100... That, hold on. That Alema... Yeah. He's a little too good looking for a guy his age, don't you think? And you want to hear something he's else? He's a handsome dude. He's a twin. He's a twin? He's a twin. There's two. We have to contend with two? Yeah. Like, oh, I went with this guy, and I was gosh. like, hey, where? And he's like, oh, I'm not a lemma. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> looks just like him, that's, sounds just like him. That's not even fair. Yeah. And no. Alema is an amazing man doing wonderful things in the world of recovery. The cool thing was there was 190 golfers there. Not all were in recovery, but I bet you a lion's share was in some way, shape, or form, whether they owned a recovery center, a detox facility, or they were alumni from other houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were in conjunction with the Sobriety Foundation, who uh, I'm their keynote speaker coming up this year for their teetotaler uh party, I guess it is, at the end of October. Yeah. And uh, Randall Carlisle usually does it, but he's not going to be able to do it this year, so they're going to ask me to do it. Oh, it's nice. And what the Sobriety Foundation does is it gives money to those uh, who are just out of rehab into sober living. Um, Which is so important because that cuts down on bounce back, you know. Recidivism. Recidivism. Yeah. Yeah. Because look at, look at the big brain on you. Yeah, well, I learned that from talking to Alema, and yeah. Alema said, if you can keep people sober for one year... After uh, leaving rehab, the chances of staying in sobriety are a lot bigger. For than, sure. And so what they want to do is, because we've talked about it before, where people who have been in and out of different recovery centers go in there thinking that they're going to get fixed because they think something's broken. But when you really get in there and you figure out there's a lot more to the story than just being fixed. Sure. Uh, then they go back to the same toxic environment that led them mm-hmm. to going into recovery. Uh, you know, so we'd call what they're doing a bridge service. Okay, like it's a bridge to get you from one area to another, right? So they're in they're in rehab, they've done well. Maybe they're coming out in that pink cloud, mm-hmm. but they need a bridge to kind of get them through that first year so that they can start living a real sober lifestyle and not do the recidivism stuff. So they help them by scholarship and then for two to three months of getting a a place to live, finding them a job and and kind of, you know, baby stepping into the world of recovery. I remember right out of recovery, I mean, I was ready to tackle the world. And I remember so much in the fact that I was sober for 45 days and I called KSL and I said, hey, I'm better. I'm all good. I'm all good. I'm, I'm ready for my job. And I remember the boss, who's now the big boss, says, I don't think you're ready. And I go, oh, no, I'm ready. And she goes, "Mm, you're not ready. And truth be told, and she's always like this, she was right. I wasn't ready. There's still a lot of learning and figuring out who I am and where I want to go and what I want to be to to, to deal with. And to all of a sudden jump back into what. Well, it's, you know, the the pace and the stress and. All that stuff wouldn't have gone away. I would never blame blame my alcoholism on my job, but was it a factor in it? Sure. You know, with some of the stress, the way to alleviate it, uh, thinking who I was, who I wasn't, and and, and all of that that went into it. So I had to figure out, for that first three years, figure out who I was and what I wanted to be, and if this was that important to me, and if it would be a detriment to my sobriety, and all those things that I... Well, I remember we talked, there was a time when you thought, I don't know if I really even want to go back to doing media stuff. Because, I wasn't sure. because you wanted, you were thinking, well, maybe I need a new focus in life. A career path. Yeah. Or maybe I just need to focus on this. And then if I bring this back in there, is this going to bring back old memories or, or whatever it is? And so, Or would people give you a second chance? Because, you know, you burned a bridge or two. Well, the lady we were talking about, Tanya. Yeah. 
She's hired me three times. <laughs> she's she's awesome. Yeah, I she, love Tanya. She's an amazing sure. yeah. person, and I owe her my career. Yeah. Uh, and I tell her that all the time, and, she, and and she'll always she's so good. She'll always stop and go, "No, you earned your career. Yeah, I gave you an opportunity, but you had yeah. to do the work." But it's you know that's where I always say nobody succeeds on their own. No, and we always have to have some people believe in us, give us a chance, give us support. And Tanya's been unbelievable that way. High tides raises all ships. There you go. Back to the ships. Right back, yeah. I see where you're going. Hey, uh, before we get to our our guest, his name is Jake Wimpy. Uh, He's got an amazing story to tell. And we've been talking back and forth for, I don't know, almost a year on Facebook. And we finally got him here to tell his story. Before we get to him, as I was driving in, I got a call from a friend. And... uh, it was one of those calls where they go, I got a question about recovery. And I go, is this about a friend? You know what I mean? Yeah. And they're like, no, no, it really is about a friend. I go, either way, I'm cool with it. But they wanted to talk about uh, pornography addiction. Okay. And uh, she was talking to somebody who is battling pornography. Mm-hmm. And the person that's battling pornography said, uh, pornography addiction is different than all other addictions because once you think of it, you're back in your addiction. And she goes, I want to know what your thoughts are. And I'm going to tell you what I told her, and then you tell me if I was wrong. Okay. I said, it sounds to me like an addict justifying why they do what they do. Because in my mind, there needs to be an action. I said, because you know, right out of rehab for me, I would hear somebody open a Coca-Cola can, and my mind would automatically think of a beer. And I would get a little tense, a little excited, and salivate, and thinking, oh, man, somebody's about to have a good time. Because I, that's what right. vision in my brain. Yeah, yeah. You're conditioned to that. But there's got to be an action to it. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody who's battling a pornography addiction thinks of something pornographic, doesn't mean they're automatically back in their addiction unless there was an action to that. Is that true, or am I wrong, or am I, am I completely off-based? So you know you're talking to a cognitive psychologist. Yeah. So why can't a thought be an action? I don't know. We would consider a thought an action. Oh, you would? Yeah. Here's the deal. But you, so you're how not, does, so you're, how does somebody battling pornography not think of that? Because well, you tell me not to think of an elephant, I just thought of an elephant. Yeah. You're not, you're not fully correct, and neither was the, the addict that you're quoting. Well, that's why I brought you. Yeah. So the truth is... Any addiction, when you think about it, can start the process neurologically of that addiction kind of welling up in you. Yeah. You gave the example of somebody cracking open a Coke and that sound, but I promise you, back when you first were out of rehab, if you just thought of a beer, if you you just thought of it, if you thought of being in the bar, sitting on the deck, oh, you know, any of that kind of stuff, then what starts to happen is a dopamine response starts to flow in your brain, uh-huh. and a person starts to want, my thoughts might lead me to certain feelings, like, oh boy, that sure would be good right now. Yeah. And then you might move into actions where you act on it. So with, with pornography, it's particularly that way, because what what is the addiction? Well, it starts with images, and we can pull up images in our mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the images start off the whole kind of sexual response process. And then then I don't know if on KSL I can say masturbation, but that's always part of it. And masturbation and and orgasm are part of that whole process uh, that reinforces pornographic addictions. However, uh, that's a great self-awareness. So if I were talking to this addict or anybody who's listening right now, I'd say, Awesome. Now you've identified a trigger, whether it's an external trigger like hearing the can open or an internal trigger like thinking about the pornography or thinking about whatever your addiction is. Mm-hmm. As soon as you recognize the trigger, then if you're involved in therapy, you can utilize some cognitive and behavioral skills, reframing to train that to go away. So now, almost five years later for you, if somebody opens a can of Coke around you, is it the same response no. as it used to be? What, what's your response now? Bowden, how many soda pops is that today for you? <laughs> so now it's automatically to soda and Bowden's overindulging. Yes. Gotcha. I mean, it's that, a parenting that, that, issue that, now. That, that's really it's what not it is. an addiction like, issue. Hey, you've already had your soda pop for the day, bud. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. So what's happened is what was once conditioned has now been extinguished. 
Yeah. And so that connection between that sound and your alcoholism has been, was conditioned over time, many years of drinking. And now over many years of sobriety, that's been extinguished, that connection. And now it's back to, you know, a parenting issue. Mm-hmm. And so that's our hope with, with addiction over time is that a person may be wise to always consider themselves an addict for the fact that, that it will help stop them from dabbling in that area of their addiction. But we can take something that was conditioned like pornography, gambling, alcohol, whatever, and we can extinguish that connection and make it kind of into a more of a normal situation. Now, to be honest with pornography, there are some special considerations. We don't need to get into them today, but it is a little bit different perhaps than just uh, alcohol. But, you know, each addiction has its own challenges. Sure. You know. So I, I think that's good. I think we should have a, I think there'd be a good time to get somebody back in here with a It's hard to addiction. talk, get people on the show to talk, like well, experts that, in pornography. Or somebody who's mm-hmm. afflicted with it. Because yeah. I was talking to this person, and I was like, you know, we'll have people come on the podcast and talk about things about their life, about, I mean prostituting themselves out, living on the street, and, yeah. and and feel free to tell it. But trying to find somebody to talk about a pornography addiction, the stigma is so great that yeah. they don't want to talk about it. It's so shame-based, mm-hmm. the way we deal with pornography. And I, I think I understand at least why it has been in the past. But I think that's a new frontier for uh, recovery, people working in the field of recovery, to help destigmatize and take that seriously. Because I've even heard people who are you know, drug addicts or alcoholics uh, say things like, well, that's not a real addiction. And it's like, oh, even within the community of recovery, we have to be a little bit more united and realize that things like pornography, sex, gambling, uh, eating, these sorts of things uh, can and are can be and are addictions for people. So I think we have a ways to go on that one. No, well, but what I think is cool is that this person trusted you enough to call you up and ask your opinion. And I think you, what you said is fine to them, but I think because you have an instinct of an addict, which is that person may have been sort of making a, an excuse. Mm -hmm. We weren't there. We didn't hear how they phrased it. Um, and I think, uh, we have to, you know, addicts, that's a major tool in the tool belt is justification and excuse making. And so we have to be careful with ourselves. You know, what about me if I'm like, well, it's been a long day. I, I deserve some ice cream. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that's just an excuse. Matt should never be eating ice cream again. Wow. That's not necessarily true. No, you should I, be eating it every day. Well, we're maybe, talking about moderation. All I'm things 51. in moderation, including moderation. I'm 51. I think I can give. I've eaten enough ice cream in my day. I should probably go cold. But turkey. I did end the conversation with my friend saying, and I just need you to know this. I'm not a therapist. And that's that's good. I'm, I think. I think there's there's a difference between like the professional going into seeing the therapist, but but folks who are experiencing it, who are in recovery, they're very accessible. You're a very accessible person. I think you make people feel comfortable, and a lot of our guests do the same. You know, they're in recovery. They've they've lived the life, and they're accessible. So if you're out there listening to the show, thinking who should I talk to, I would start with an accessible person, somebody that you feel close to. I'm just a puddle of water for people to dip their toe into when they're thinking about recovery. I mean, to be honest with you, they're like, I'm going to run this by him to see what his thoughts yeah, that's are. That's a great place and, to start. And though. I go, you yeah. know, and, and that, but I always end it with, yeah. but I'm not a therapist. Yeah. This is just my insight. This is what I know. Do you from give my people addiction. suggestions where to go? I always do. Yeah. I always, you know, I always go. And my first line of defense is, are you seeing a therapist? Because I think a therapist is always a good place to start. Yeah. You can go in and in a non-judgmental, non-consequential relationship, you can talk things out. And so a lot of people come in and they'll say to me, they're like, I think I might have a problem with this thing. Could we talk about it? And that's a great, I think a lot of us are holding thoughts in our head like, Am I, do I have a problem with that? You know, is that something that's a problem or See, is it just something mind, I do? See, in my mind, once you say, I think I might have a problem. You, you probably do. You know you do. But, you know I mean, I mean? you but, need a safe place to talk about yeah, that, right? Because sometimes you don't feel safe talking with a spouse or a loved one or somebody because right. the judgment that comes with it or the yeah. deceit or, or because, I mean, there's a, just a lot packed into that. Yeah, you don't want to be talking to the neighbor about, you know, the, the hedges and then you're like, you know, I look at porn a lot. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if that's a problem. Do you look at porn? 
you know, you're going to get some eyes going down to the shoes pretty fast on that conversation. That, that's what the stigma is tough to overcome. Yeah. So a therapist is a good person. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your insight. Always a pleasure. And I'm happy to be back. You're listening to Project Recovery. Our guest today is Jake Wimpy. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? Uh, so how long have you been sober, my friend? I, I, well, I've got two, two dates that I go by, so I, I'm a little different. Give us them both. When I got off of opiates and heroin, six, almost seven years now, uh-huh. and then I had a relapse, went meth and other stuff, and it put me in jail, and that's when I finally went and got some help. So, and so how long has it been since uh, meth and the other stuff? Four years now. Um, geez, just over four years, yeah. Congratulations on both those dates, and I think they're both important. And I think it's not uncommon for an addict to have multiple dates, yeah. uh, you know, uh, for people to well, do it. A lot, a lot of us have multiple addictions. Yeah. Right? And, you know, the, the, the thing is, is um, when we say on this podcast, DOC, we talk about drug of choice. And for many, their drug of choice just seems to be the drug that brought them down. Mm. But if you go back and hear a lot of the past guests, they talked about multiple use and multiple drugs. Yeah. But one usually just arises to the top, the one that, you know, you ride to the end. You want to know a diagnosis I use quite a bit for people? I would love it. Polysubstance abuse. Oh, yeah. Because it may start with one thing, but by the time they're coming in and getting some help, they may be struggling with quite a few different substances. Yeah. And we're going to hear Jake's story coming up in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Jake Wimpy. Uh, he's got two sobriety dates, one from opioids and one from other stuff. Uh, we're going to hear his story now. But you said you were a little bit nervous coming in to do the podcast. Let's talk about that just for a second. Why do you think you were nervous? Um, you know what? A lot of a lot of the a lot of my memories of drug use when I was sick or when I was needing or when I was doing the stuff that got me in trouble was all around this area, you know, so downtown Salt downtown Lake. Salt Lake. Yeah. Let me ask you this because people that's are conditioning. Yeah. So that's what we talked about before is that association between where you were and what you're doing and how you felt then. And you've been away from it, but you come back and you get a little tinge of uncomfortableness. That's that conditioning that happens. Yeah. yeah. We got people walking around all the time downtown Salt Lake, going to and from businesses, working, recreating, and doing that. How accessible, how easy is it to get drugs in downtown Salt Lake? Um, very easy. Like, it, it's every, every time I got drugs in downtown Salt Lake. So just if I couldn't get my dealer because he was in jail or whatever, I just knew to come up around the block or hop on a train and take it somewhere and you're there. So, and, and you, so you can just go to certain areas of town and just stand around and you're going to have a, yeah. And you start, you, you can look and know, kind of, you can tell who's, after you see it a couple of times, yeah. you know, you know where it's at and who's doing it. So, all right, let's talk about the story of Jake Wimpy. Uh, where does it begin? You know, I, I guess I could go back as, as a child, uh, my childhood, you know, sure. um, alcoholism probably drugs but we didn't talk about it but ran in the family my dad was an alcoholic grandpa that kind of stuff but i had a good upbringing you know so you know it's interesting to say that because you know i found out through this podcast that my grandfather was an alcoholic when my dad told me about that and back then i don't think there was the same stigma of being called an alcoholic 40 years ago as that it is today to 40 years ago, when somebody was an alcoholic, just meant that they drank a lot. You know what I mean? It was thrown around kind of loosely. Does that make sense? I mean, it, 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 yeah, but I mean, it also was still like you didn't talk about it. Yeah. Right? So they downplayed it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so drugs ran and alcohol a little rampant in your family. Yeah. And I think you just hit on something there for me was at all costs, I kept stuff hid, you know, at all costs. If I got prescriptions, I didn't want people to know. I didn't. You know, I, well, I wasn't taken, and that wasn't me. You, know? you may be aware from your own experience, but when you study families 
of alcoholics, the kids grow up and one of the common behaviors they have is, um, you know, they hide things. They, they, they are unlikely to feel comfortable being open with others, whether it's about their thoughts or their feelings or what they're doing. And sometimes when they get married, they may not be doing anything wrong, but their spouse is like, you're all, you're kind of shifty. You know, you're not, you're keeping stuff to yourself because they grow up in a family learning that that's how you get along with others is you keep things to yourself. Is that called modeling? Yeah, the modeling of, of, the, of the parents. Yeah, so that sounds like that was your experience too. Yeah. Huh? So did you have siblings? Yeah, I have uh, two brothers, two sisters. I was the second oldest. Uh-huh. So my brother's just just year and a half older than me. Irish twins. Yeah. Who who, uh, who in the family struggled with alcoholism? Your father? Um, my dad did until I was sixteen, and then he was he passed three years ago. But he was he was clean for thirty years off of. Oh. stuff so he was so he drank until you were 16 and then he got sober 16 I, well they got divorced at 16 so somewhere between 16 17 18 I don't in that remember time when he frame was clean as a you know but about 30 do you know how clean. he how did he get clean and sober he just had to i think i think he felt had like to, he had to white knuckled it. it yeah so he started going to aa and just for 30 years just kept doing it okay good for him and, you know and they tell you in aa and the 12 steps you know it works keep coming back and, you know, and for a lot of people, that is their safety. That is sure. going back to those rooms. And for those that it works, I, I, I applaud you. I think that's great. Keep going back. The main truth in that is keep doing the, the, the next good thing, the mm-hmm. next right thing. Like, so if it's AA, keep going. If it's some other method, keep doing it. It's when you stop doing the self-care that you are at risk for relapse. Yeah. Jake, do you remember the first time you tried alcohol? Um, I was probably 15, 16, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, maybe uh, probably 15, but, uh, just with buddies and I hated it. Like it was like, yuck, you know, isn't that true? That's most people's experience. Yeah. The first time they try alcohol, they're like, Oh yeah. yeah. And I was scared of it. Cause I saw my dad and I saw, I saw what it did. So I was like, so was did you get down? I was scared of it. Did you, know? you get drunk the first time or did you just taste it and say, that's not for me? I actually poured, I, I pretended I swallowed it and tasted like, tasted terrible. So I poured it out and acted like I didn't to my buddies. So yeah. same thing. But yeah, eventually, it tasted good or, or something took to you. Yeah, you know, I went through some, I I went through some health stuff later in life. I was diagnosed with uh, with MS, or so it put me through some chronic pain, put me on prescriptions, and so I got there in a different way. Like, I don't think I would have ever just picked up some of the stuff I did and did it. In fact, so, I know I wouldn't have. But. In high school and your early years, your twenties, not much drinking. Um, nah, just, no. In my 20s, probably more, but every other weekend, not a lot, no. And it's it's something that it didn't didn't take to you. Like, this was something that made your life complete. We've had a lot of people who sit down in that chair in this podcast and say, you know, this was the missing piece. This is when my social life became what it was. This is what made me feel who I thought I would always be, you know? Yeah, and for me, it wasn't. I, I always felt... Like, like things came simple to me or easy. I don't know how to say it, you know, and be humble about it, but I, things seemed to come easy. So I didn't want to ever cloud my mind. That's, that's the crazy part. What of kind it. of things are you thinking of? Things? Just okay. like business. Uh, you know, I excelled in business early. I bought a, built a home at 24. Like I just, I had the world, you know, yeah. until things happen and I, I had to go on pills or thought I had to. Mm-hmm. So like, let's, that's a funny thing. So let's dive into that. So, uh, Diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Um, how old were you when that came about? Oh, probably 33-ish. So it's been about 18, 20 years now. Now, prior to that, uh, what were the symptoms? Well, I mean, were you... Just my feet went started going numb. My my vision, I'd be out hunting, and it usually was great vision, and I couldn't see. So I just went to the doctor and then got diagnosed with it, so... And when you get diagnosed with uh, MS, um, what are your options? Um, well, there's no cure. So really, to me, options are different today than what they were back then. Back then, it was, you're in pain. So in my mind, I took stuff for pain, you know, to get out. And then uh, you, you, you kind of attack the symptoms. 
because there's no cure. So, so what kind of pain were you experiencing? I mean, was it like debilitating pain? Was it uncomfortable pain? I mean, because when you go to see a pain specialist, they have you rate on a scale of one to ten. Like, yeah. what kind of pain are you in? You know, and is it throbbing? Is it acute? Yeah, is it, you know. You know what? It it was it was neurological is the best way I can describe it. Like, yeah. like somebody with um, numb feet. But then there's a pain to it, and then it's in your arms. It's all yeah, over. Yeah, I've or, talked to quite a few people with MS, and it is miserable because it's sort of this chronic throbbing, you know, soreness and pain that just doesn't go away because it's that the nerve, right. the nerves are having, you know, trouble with MS, and so that numbness turns into pain. You'd think, oh, numbness, it wouldn't be painful, but it's a strange combination yeah, of numbness, a, a tingling, pain, burning, burning feeling. Yeah. yeah, so it's not very tolerable. It's not easy to tolerate. No. But this was 18 years ago, and as we know, I mean, that's when opioids uh, run rampant. And that's yeah. when you could get multiple prescriptions. Docs are like, oh, I got some yeah. for you. Yeah. And they were told, or you know, whether, whatever you believe, it's not habit-forming. Right. Uh, this is going to help you, and uh, this is going to be a savior. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that you would think, oh, the doctors should know better, but this was sort of a new generation of pain medicine, and the doctors relied a lot on the data, and now we know a lot of that data was faked. Yeah. It was lies, and and it was habit-forming. And, of course, a lot of doctors did their own research and realized this isn't going to be a good thing, but I'm sure you got, you know, uh, opiate-based pain medicine offered to you all over the place. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I had... As many as Oxycontin and Oxycodone and Percocet and whatever, right? Fentanyl at time. Like, I had it. Whatever you wanted, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 it, and let me say, it wasn't the doctor's fault. Like, right. No, no. I, and they were trying, and you guys aren't saying that, but a lot of people tend to think that sometimes. And, yeah. you know, just going through it, they wanted me to be comfortable. They wanted me to be healthy. And I'll tell you what, you know, I work in a medical department at the University of Utah. So most of my colleagues are physicians. And I can tell you one thing any type of physician or nurse has in common is they just want to make people feel better. Mm -hmm. And they will prescribe the things and do the procedures that help you feel better. That's why they're in the business. And so when that came along, and at first, it really did make people feel better. You could see how that that's your mission in life is to alleviate pain and and make people healthier then that was a tempting thing for doctors to prescribe so right. it was just a bad culture the first time you took an opioid or first thing you were prescribed did you have an epiphany did you have a some kind of feeling that you're like oh this is good or was it hey this helps my pain cool um, it was more, at first it was that it was, this helps my pain. I can keep getting, being a dad. I can be, keep being a breadwinner, all the stresses, you know, that, that come with it. And so that, that, that was great for me, but it doesn't continue that way. So do you remember a, a time when it switched? Uh, we've had people on the podcast who, uh, took their prescription to the very end and lo and behold, at the end, they're like, Oh, remember we had the guy in here that said, I thought I had the flu. And my buddy right. came over and said, you're dope sick. And right. he had no idea what it was. He goes, yeah. oh, now I'm addicted. They had no idea he walked himself into an addiction. Yeah. And that's, that's the first time I was dope sick. I was the same way. I was like, what's going on? I just got the flu. But then you, I became very good at self-medicating, obviously. So it was take this. If you're dope sick, take, you know. So it was all reliable. So. As long as I kept the act up and kept working and didn't have to be honest with myself. Did, you, did your surviving. prescriptions run out? Did they start to not want to prescribe um, for you anymore? Well, they didn't run out, but they did, if that makes sense. So I... Your tolerance increased, and so you needed yeah, more. Somehow, I yeah. one month, I didn't have enough. And I don't know the exact reason. I probably took them, but I don't know, you know. So, I mean, I'm at a point where... I talked to a buddy, and he said, well, here. And he introduced me to just snorting heroin out of a sinus bottle, just something simple. Mm-hmm. And I I learned from that that you could do that, get back into your appointment, get your prescriptions, and continue. So you, know, you not have to be dosed. started like. thinking of it as sort of a holdover when you ran short one month. Yeah, so just survive. Just mm-hmm. survive to get 
more and but that's that's kind of a that's a little bit of a departure from taking a prescribed pill your buddy just says hey snort this up your nose did that sort of give did you think oh, okay cool or were you like i don't know about well, I was this about two days into it oh. so i was sick and i was yeah, like i'm desperate at right? that time i didn't yeah. i really didn't care i was just like i gotta I'm, I'm going to ask you a question better, yeah. here. At some point, you started taking opioids to help with the pain of MS. Uh, and then you find yourself in a full-blown addiction. And at that point, was it more important to get high, or did you even think about the MS? Does that make sense? Yeah. You know what's funny is I didn't. it got to a point where I didn't know where the pain was coming from. Whether it was withdrawals or whether it was the you see what I'm saying? Like you're just in pain. It just it was just yeah. I would take towards the end. I would just take pills to or take the medicine to to lay in bed and to eat and to just normal easy stuff. So research in the last couple of years has started to show us that uh, actually it's even more. Um, complicated or even nefarious than that. So when your body gets, you know, builds that tolerance for the opioids and the, the painkillers you're taking and you run out, it wants more. Mm. And so what your brain will do is up the pain. Mm. So it increase, you have an increase in the pain response in order to like, it's, it's as if the brain's up there saying, I got to make this guy go get some opiates. Mm -hmm. How can I do that? Well, if I kick the pain up, he's going to go into action and get me some more opiates. Yeah. So your brain starts working against you. So actually what they found is chronic opiate use over time increases pain in patients, uh, as an eventual, like kind of final stage. And so I, when I've learned that, I'm just like, boy, our brains are amazing, but sometimes they're not our friend. You yeah. know, they're not working for us. Jake, at one point you talked about uh, holding yourself over with heroin in a nasal spray. Uh, how long did you, were you able to keep the addiction going before family and friends started to wonder what's going on with Jake? Oh, it was already going on at that point. Like they were, I don't, they didn't write me off, but I wouldn't have listened to any, like ego, I know what I'm doing. I have to. I've got health stuff. Every excuse in the world now, that I made. I, I don't want to ask this question, but I do. How much did you blame your addiction um, on your MS? Oh, all of it. I I blamed and everything that happened to me. Because I'm thinking I as myself, everybody. as an addict, this seems like a way to shut everybody up. Oh, yeah. I've got this disease that's incurable. And I'm doing what I can to get through the day, and you're telling me that I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. Screw you, They're and wrong. I'm doing what I need to do. They don't understand. You don't know what I'm going through. You know. Yeah. The anger, the, the, all of that stuff I went through. So you've got two sobriety dates, um, one from opioids and one from meth and other things, you said. Uh, how does it come to an end with the opioids? So I – man – I had a friend reach out to me. Well, I think my sister contacted a friend of mine who had been through addiction and, and whatnot, and he just reached out to me one day. I was at my apartment in Draper, and he said... Were you divorced at the time? Yeah, I'd just gone through a divorce, and I hated the world. Like, I didn't want to be bugged. I didn't, you know, I didn't want anybody to contact me. And he contacts me, and he says, you probably need to go get some help, you know. And he did it not in a attacking way, but I loving. care about you, loving, and... And I thought I started thinking about it, and just sat in my apartment, going, "Yeah, I probably do." But then things happen, and things happen. So I I decided to go to detox. Tried to get into recovery and stuff, but my insurance didn't cover. But detox was covered, so I thought I'll go up to LDS. So I went to LDS and did detox. But it was it's kind of it's kind of funny how when you're wanting to better your life. When it comes to addiction, for me anyway, every everything pops up that could be like every trigger you could possibly have popped up, you know that. And so it took me. My brother came and got me um, to take me up there, and uh, like I'm running around the house looking for one more hit, one more before I go. Then on the way up here, he's taking me up there, and I go, "Can you just drop me off downtown and wait so I can go store another hit and then go." And he just left me right down in downtown, which is the best thing he could do for me, you know, because I just went, 
yeah, this is ridiculous. So I continued to get my stuff, sat over at a Brevinal Hall and did my last bit of drugs and then walked to LDS, just checked into detox. Well, why do you think he left you? Because I was putting him, his family, all everything he was in jeopardy, you know. He was just doing me a favor, so he's like, I can't put that at risk. And he was right to do it, so. But it caused you to have to make, instead of him taking you there, you had to walk. And f- most people know if they're from around here, but that's a bit of an uphill walk, getting yeah. up to the LDS hospital from yeah. downtown. And, you know, that that's a walk that most most of us would probably rather get an Uber for. Yeah. Right? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm impressed that you walked up and you did it. I mean, I you, you talk about, you know, when you want to get sober, uh, how a lot of things pop up, a lot of triggers. Like, for me, and I'm thinking in my attic brain, mm-hmm. hey, look, here I want to get help, and the one person said he was going to help me just left me downtown. <laughs> you, 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 I right. mean, but that's the way an addict thinks. Yeah. He goes, you know what? Screw that guy and yep. screw them. I'm going to stay here and do what I do. Yeah. yeah. But the fact that you were so resolute about going up to the temple, you know, I mean, up to the LDS hospital, yeah. I mean, that's impressive. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the last time I did it that day. Like, I haven't touched it since, so. Had a little bout with something else, but yeah. We're going to get to that in a second, but so you go up to detox. And for those who don't know, uh, a detox is anywhere from three to probably 10 days, depending on the substance that you're coming off from. Right. So uh, by no means is it the 30 days or 45 days or 90 days that a lot of people do in treatment. They're Uh, trying to make sure you're medically stable and safe that way. Because opioids and heroin and alcohol are some of the most dangerous drugs to detox from. For sure. Like if somebody wants to detox from meth, there's no detox. If somebody wants to detox from Adderall, cocaine, there's no detox. There's nothing they can give you. All you have to do is just sit in the uncomfortableness. It has a short half-life. You know, but if you come off of heroin, opioids, and alcohol, you like... You can go into seizure. You can your yeah. your heart can stop. Yeah, and it, that's actually not uncommon. A lot of the overdoses that we that are can, you know labeled overdoses, um, we find that those might have just been people that uh, were dope sick and didn't make it through that. Yeah. Mm. So, how long did you spend in detox? Um, I was there. I think six days, seven days, something like that. And then where did you go after that? Um, and then uh, I had an apartment. I had my apartment in Draper. Just went back to Draper and. I, I was on my sub, Subutex, Suboxone, whatever it was at the time, and for two years I was I was great, um, and just living and you know getting healthier and trying to get more healthy as far as physical because I had the physical side and the the mental side too. So, um, so did you do that mostly on your own with the Suboxone, or did you get any help? Um, I just they just gave me a doctor at LDS, and I just started going to them. Okay, so. But no therapy or or no groups or or nobody to kind of talk no about what's going at the on. Time no, I, I still was just trying to, you know, nobody understands. I've got this taken care of now, but the funny part is, is I was still taking clonopin. I was still taking everything except for the pain part of it, you know, mm-hmm. for another two years. And then um, one day I just said, you know what? Going off the heroin made it and the opiates just made it so much better. If I was off of everything. That'd be better. So I just went cold turkey, Jeez. off the boxing, off all of it, which I don't suggest. And to be honest, ever. there was people in the rehab that I attended that were in there for clonopin. Yeah, clonopin's a benzodiazepine that's uh, similar to Xanax. It's very abusable. Oftentimes, people will mix it with alcohol. Uh, it can also be very dangerous and creates addictions as well. Yeah. So yeah. one day you decide if my life's this good off of heroin and opium, I'm going to get off all the other stuff. Right. And so you you stop, and then I stopped, and then because I, in my opinion, because I didn't have the therapy, I didn't have the work involved. No after in it, plan. It just, I just started wanting to self medicate again, like oh, immediately. Yeah. I mean that you you put your body through shock, yeah, and you had no support there to help you through it. Yeah, that's a tough situation. So you, you want to start self medicating, but you know you can't go to this group of drugs because you've had a problem with those. And I, and I've already told the doctors I'm dealing with this, so I'm not going to get it that way. 
so I went. I I turned to. I started turning to meth because I didn't have the side effects from it. I didn't have. So how? But how? How do you make that? How do you make that jump? You know what I mean? Like I can't do these ones, but oh, maybe meth. You know what? It's just. I don't know. I don't know exactly. Did you have? Answer. I, I did used you have to people be on in your Adderall life? and stuff. Yeah. And so I was, in my mind, I was lacking energy, and so that was that was the smartest thing, you know. In my but were people around you in your social circles or people you knew doing meth? I mean, I mean, we yeah. talked about how easy it is to walk around downtown Salt Lake and get the drug that you want. Uh, I mean, how did you find meth? I, I could just get it from Salt Lake people, like. It's it's all over too. So yeah, well, I think I think it's the drug culture, right? So somebody yeah. who can sell you some heroin can also probably sell yeah. you some meth. And I knew those people. I cut them off, but when I, I want to visit the logic here, though, for a second, like so, so you're feeling lousy because you just cold turkeyed off your medicine, and you had you had a downer, something that makes you relax, and then you also had things like Adderall that would pump you up, right? Um, and so you want to get off all of that, but you're now feeling really low. Adderall's a it's very abusable. I'm not downplaying the the the, the significance of an Adderall addiction. But meth, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's dirtier. It's off the street. You don't know what's going yeah. how does How does your brain go? I don't want to get back on Adderall, but I think I'll try meth. Well, my, my rationalization probably, I don't know what you'd call it, but my brain would tell me uh, heroin's the worst. Because for me, it was. Like, yeah. And I think a lot of people think that. Yeah. I think heroin has that reputation. And it's not necessarily, but in my mind, it was, you know. Yeah. And... And I'm just thinking because I'm an addict and I've got an addict brain. Okay. Yeah. Hear me out. <laughs> you start on opioids. Yeah. You can't get the prescription for those. Right. So you ought to, you know, most people progress to heroin. It's cheaper, more available. Yeah. You start on Adderall, mm-hmm. which is a prescription based drug. Okay. And yep. you can't get that anymore. Mm-hmm. So it eventually it's going to lead to meth. A street version. You, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? So, I hear you. And so, I mean. Yeah. And, I, and it wasn't an everyday thing either, but every time I did it, I got in trouble. Like, it, it, and, and I still can give what us an mean? example. Yeah. Just I turned into a different, per- like assault. That just stupid Did stuff. Did you become kind of me, aggressive? You know? Yeah, yeah. So stuff that's not me, plus my anger on top of it, plus no counseling. Yeah. Like, well, and let's we've sort of storm. skipped over the fact that you are divorced now. I I remember you said at 24 you built a house, but now you're living in an apartment and you're divorced. That might yeah. make a guy feel kind of yeah. angry. Yeah. The ego. The the not being able to support my family anymore, like just so much without counseling wasn't going to get fixed. So let's yeah. let's talk about it. You're you're doing meth. You're living in an apartment in Draper. Where is your family at this time? Um, my apartment was like two blocks away from my ex-wife and my d- youngest daughter um, at that time. But then by the time I got to this meth part, I had, had remarried from a girl f- from high school. And she... She stuck with me through all of it. Like the worst legal parts of my life was was the math. So it's mm. it's kind of interesting. And she was there for me. But um, then I moved down down south, down Utah County. Mm-hmm. So you say every time you took math, you turned into a different person and ended up in trouble. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I know this part of your story because you told me on the way in, um, landed yourself in. Jail or prison? Jail. They didn't send me to prison, but like we'll let up to that. Let's yeah. let, let's let's talk about that if you want to. You know, you know what's funny? I look back now and go, I I I, I went there maybe three or four times, just short stays, and went. Oh, I get myself out. I could talk myself out of anything, you know. And it was finally a stay where I I figured they weren't going to do that anymore. They're not gonna. They're not just going to let you out on this one, and so. I was going to be there a while, and I just finally got on my knees, prayed, and said, I, I might as well get something out of this, man. Like, what is a I'm prayer, here anyway. What does a last-minute, last-chance prayer sound like? I just said, I, I don't know how I got here, but, you know, if um, just make my weaknesses strong, my strengths, you know. So I can remember that being my first prayer and then not knowing how to do it. And being angry, and it was everybody else's fault that I was there still, but I was going to have a good attitude about it. That's that's where it started. The mindset of, you know, I, I, I can be responsible for, for what I've done, you know. So 
That's a pretty big mindset shift from blaming everybody else to saying, you know, I'm here. I might as well make lemonade out of lemons. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to get out of it. And you know what? I, I learned in life that it's all in the attitude. And I had lost that. And finally, I could sit there with myself because I'm always moving. I'm always going. And I finally took time to breathe and just say, you've got to deal with you, man. You're, you're not going to make it much longer. So. so how long did you st- stay that time in jail? That was my last one. That was five and a half months. And I did a 90-day program down there in Utah County. A 90-day uh, treatment program? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a treatment program. And it saved my life. For the first time, I learned, you know, it's, it's, it, there's, there's skills and different tools that we can get. You filled your tool belt. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what kind of uh, modalities or what uh, principles did they teach in that treatment? Um, they taught, you know, mostly just a mindset, uh, how, to, how to recognize your triggers, how to avoid them, how, you know, just your base. A 90-day program is pretty intense, and we were there five days a week, so... It's a good program. Like, I was very surprised. Let me ask you, what out of the people that were in jail with you that did the program, what do you think their response is? Because we've had people on here who have said they've done the program just as a way to break up the monotony of the day. They're like, at least I can go over here and mm-hmm. do this and talk to people. And Not very sincere. Not sincere. It. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, um, I don't know. When I was in there, um, one of the therapists said that they had never seen somebody come back a year later still clean, which it really hit me. I, I was like, really? Like, a year later? So I don't know. The, like, I, I don't see any of those guys. My wife set a rule that I couldn't hang out with guys I Sounds knew. like a pretty good rule. It, is, it saved me, I'm probably, telling you. Probably didn't have much in your corner fighting that one. That was one. my worst enemy, so that was a good rule. But um, So... I don't know. I don't see any of them, like, other than I hear they're in jail or prison again. And just like, man. Yeah, there's a lot of that recidivism that mm-hmm. Casey was talking about. Uh, why do you think it stuck for you? Um, I think probably, because, I don't know if it's that I had a different life before and I, I had experienced that. And so I knew what I could do. Or if it's, you know, I just finally just said, why why live like this like and so i started attacking my health my just all of it because there were so many things i needed to fix if if that makes sense i think what you're saying makes a lot of sense like that's you know when a when you've had a taste of what a healthy good life feels like then that can be motivating for you to realize like i'm i'm feeling desperate enough i have to make a choice mm. do i want to keep going down this path or do i want to get to that good life again. So I, I, th- I could see how that helps. Well, I mean, they, they say in life, you only know what you know. Yeah. You know, and so if that's all you that know, but you knew the other side, you knew what life could be and you had lost it and you, you wanted to get it back. Which is kind of hard when you're going through it because uh-huh. you know better, but you know better. So it's good. Too. So after five and a half months of jail, uh, they let you out. Sounds like you're still married. Yeah. Um, what do you do for an aftercare? Did they talk about that in the 90-day program? Did you guys set up some some safety nets and some and some things to do to keep you on that road to recovery? Yeah, I did a two-year, was it two-year? I, I was about a year and a half, two years, like an outpatient, uh, APS in Orem. And then, um, you know, when COVID hit, I was still just trying to get back. And I noticed things like, because I used to just sit in the basement and do drugs. Like, I would retreat. I didn't want to be around people. And I noticed during COVID I started doing that. So I called a buddy of mine, and just he owns a horse ranch, and just started doing volunteering time during COVID, and it saved me. It, like, gave me something to do. Yeah, that's um, smart. And and equine therapy is a thing. I mean, being in the outdoors and connecting with the animals and yeah. doing something productive, I could see how that would be really helpful. Yeah, it was it was very huge for my recovery. And I don't want to blow our own horn here, but you said this podcast helped you out. Yeah. And then, yeah, the last year I've just been getting more active in the, the podcast community, the recovery, recovery communities, and... and uh, because I didn't go to recovery, like 
I just have friends in different places, you know. That, I don't know how to I tell respect. you this, but you did. That's I true. Mean, you know, a 90-day program is a lot more than a lot of people have had right. on this podcast. Right. You, you, your, your road was a little bit different than others, but a lot of people have walked that same path as you. And 90 days is 90 days. I, yeah. mean, I mean, you couldn't go home, uh, but I couldn't go home either when I was in for 45 days. Uh, yeah. But you were willing to accept... Um, the information, you were willing to make a change, and you were willing to do what you needed to do to get where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny because it was the only way that I would have gone to treatment. Like, it happened just like, because I would never have walked into treatment myself, even even at that point. And that's crazy, I know. I think you're downplaying yourself because you walked up to that's, that's Street true. Talk Center. That's true. I, I, was there something like a stigma or something about going to an actual treatment center that that was on your mind would have stopped you? Or I think it was the at all costs hide what you're doing. Like, oh yeah. Like I I you know I couldn't let people know you know, and that way they made me let people know. So yeah. And here you're on a podcast telling everybody your story. Yeah. Do you go around and tell your story often? Um, I do. Um, yeah, I tell a lot of people. I just had somebody call me a couple nights ago with a daughter going through some stuff. And so just I don't do it actively as much as I'd like to, but I'm going to get do, into do it. Do you find more. it? I mean, what's your experience with telling your story? What, you know, this is a little different platform than talking to a friend. and Or a 12-step uh, room. Yeah, a 12-step room. Like, do, do you think it's, is it hard for you? Does it benefit you? Like, telling your story, what is that like? Um, it benefits me just because I've seen... I seen how it affected me. Like the the guy that told me his story when I went up to detox, that's all he did on the phone really, and say, "Hey, you probably ought to go look into getting some help." And it affected me. Like I looked at him because I knew him when he was actively in addiction, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. So I, I I found I had respect for that, and so I know that that's what I can do for other people and do. But you know, I think that. Um it, you've used the the term referring to yourself as ego a few times, talking about, oh, you know, you had this ego, and I, we all have an ego, and there and it pops up sometimes in certain areas of our life. And I think when somebody shares their story of addiction and recovery, they're modeling humility uh, amongst other things. And I think that helps us break down our ego a little bit where we're like, you know what? Man, this guy's being honest with me. You know, he, he's telling me th- some pretty um, private and and embarrassing and maybe even humiliating things as part of his story. But it's and you know his story also has this other part where he was able to receive help and grow, and now he's healthy and he's in a place in life. You know, I think there's something about that that it's like giving you permission, or like you were saying earlier, modeling. You know, somebody's modeling this non-ego driven way of dealing with a problem. Our egos, man, they mess us up. Mm. They, they get in our way. So with so many things. Mm -hmm. And so I think amongst other things, you sharing your story helps other people ditch their ego and, and say, you know what, gosh, if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah. For me, when you're in your active addiction and you see the worst of worst and you see just some horrible things, and you've done horrible things. And you see somebody who's been where you are living their best life. For me, it was like, I want what that guy has. And how come he can do it? If he can do it, that means I can do it. And so when you're active in addiction, hope is not in abundance. There's not a lot of hope around. Hopeless. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when you see somebody who has been where you are and now living his best life, that gives you hope and it gives you something to shoot for. And you go, look, look, I'm not doomed. This is not how I end. We've had a lot of people who said my life was going to end two ways. Either the addiction was going to win or I was going to get my life back. Yeah. And so to see somebody who got their life back gives you hope. So uh, there's a lot of people that would just didn't even think they could get their life back. Right. So they would just accept this is where I live now. This is my world, a world of addiction. And so I'm going to ride this out and I'm going to try to do the best I can with what I have. But I'm pretty sure this is going to kill me. And that's what it felt like is this is my life for now on. Like, And you hear that. I don't know what I heard a statistic saying five percent of people or whatever get off heroin. I thought in my mind, yeah, I'm doomed. Like. No way. Well, I don't. Because ninety-five percent people fail, yeah. right? But then I said, 
I started thinking about it, like, well, why not me? Like, why not? Like, yeah. I could be that 5%. Whatever the percentage was, I don't know where I heard it, but, you know. Well, that's what was in my recovery. I remember I walked past this girl three days in a row. She goes, 13, 15. When I go, what is that? And she goes, that's 15% of us are going to make it. And I go, well, it's going to be me. And she goes, how do you know? I go, because I've got a choice. <laughs> I'm going to make sure it is me. And, Somebody's and, making it. Might yeah. as well be me. The yeah. same people who win the lottery. You, you know, you got to get in to win. You know, so I'm not, not sure that's great advice, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you're never going to play. The, you play. <laughs> that is true. You you miss all the shots you don't take. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I got gotcha. you. So, what does life look like for you now, Jake Wimpy? You know, about a year ago, I uh, I start I started uh, working at Spherion, which is staffing and and recruiting, um, and I do that now. And I I hike three or four times, or and then the, the other days I'm at the gym, just trying to build my physical side of my life up again and let's talk a little bit about that staffing because uh, i know you brought uh what was her name again laura laura in from syrian and uh basically what you guys do is provide opportunities for those who have less than uh beautiful track records yeah uh, a chance to get a job because when you get out of recovery you get out of jail and you've got a couple felonies on your jacket it's tough to get hired yeah it's tough to get a good job where people are going to treat you right right and that's what you guys pride yourself on yeah yeah we get we're we're um transitional employment that kind of stuff but we also do uh headhunting recruiting all that kind of just all kind of set. So if somebody's got uh, a felony uh, record, can you get them a job? I I don't know for sure, but Laura would know that. I think she mentioned that you can. Yeah. So. And, uh, well, she was taught, we were talking a little bit with her before the show, and by the way, I think we're going to have them come on and yes. talk yeah. more you know, in an expert way about what they do, because this is another one of those bridge services, right? Like you come out, and if you can get a job and start to support yourself, that helps you stay sober. So she was saying that they have a list of uh, addiction or recovery-friendly uh, groups. Yeah. yeah. So people who are in recovery or businesses, I should say. Say people who are in recovery, people who have felonies, they're willing to hire them, uh, and so she she's a good resource. Your your that yes, company that you yes. work for is a good resource for yeah. people. So uh, you 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 and your wife are doing good. We're doing great. I just celebrated a birthday yesterday and got to hang out with my youngest, who's just graduated, and that didn't happen for a few couple of years. You know, every every year. So then go see my oldest daughter tomorrow. So. So you're kind of back in repairing those relationships. Yeah, things are just like it's it's been a long road. Like the pills and things were 15 years. This has been what now six years plus. Like it's been a long road. So over know? 20 years to get to this point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's amazing what you're doing, and I'm so glad. I've got to ask about the MS. Uh, it's still pain or. Um, I still I, I'm still in pain, but I'll tell you what, Tylenol and ibuprofen does the trick, man. Like, I, I I learned how to hate pain before. Like, I hated it. Like, it wasn't good to me. Now, I'm in the gym. I'm hiking. It's it's all positive pain, you know. So We've a talked a little bit in the past. And I don't know if you've looked into this, but uh, we happen to have among – we have a lot of really worldwide well-known researchers at the University of Utah. One of them is a, a guy named Eric Garland. He's a – PhD in the social work department. He's done some of the cutting edge research on mindfulness and meditation for pain management. And they've shown that uh, you can actually do better at managing chronic pain with mindfulness and meditation exercises on a daily basis without, of course, any of the side effects of opiates. And people live a much um you know, better life, quality of life, higher quality of life, because they're using those techniques. So if you haven't looked into those, I would say that would be a good thing to look into. And anybody else who's listening, uh, I've sat in on his seminars a couple of times, and it's very impressive. It sounds like it couldn't work, but the research is very clear that it does. And in fact, you can do better than than opiates yeah. without any of those side effects. So You know, somebody once said me and you wouldn't work together, and here we are five I know, years. right? You know what I mean? Like we're like an Define old married the couple. odds. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dr. Matt, I've got to ask you your thoughts on Jake's story. 
Well, you know, um, Jake kind of sounds like uh, one of those folks that you had addiction running in your family, but it wasn't exactly the same as your dad's. You know, it wasn't the alcohol. And that, unfortunately, through really no fault of your own, just trying to seek treatment, that uh, addiction got triggered. And I, I think your story is... Uh, kind of typical in that way, atypical in the sense that you've been pretty tough in managing, you know, your uh, recovery, like walking yourself up to the hospital and, and, you know, you've done the treatment in the prison, but kind of finding your own way since then. I think toughness and fortitude, having like owning it, like this is what I want to do is always an important part of recovery. And I would just, uh, encourage people to not skip out on that part of the formula. You got to be tough. Uh, the thing I like about Jake, uh, brother, you've been carrying a, a big load for a lot of years, you know, uh, and I listen to your story and I think it's inspiring. I think it's wonderful. And I think it's positive. But one thing I notice about you is you downplay um, what a hero and what a good man you are. Um, you did what needed to be done, uh, and you did it your way. And it wasn't the way that, you know, everyone else's story is, but it's your way. And here you are to tell your story of recovery and help others. And so I'm proud of you, man. And uh, I Thank think you. you should be proud of yourself as well because I'm impressed by you. I think you're a wonderful human being, and I think you're going to do a, a lot of good things in this world. Thank you. I appreciate it. Both of you. Definitely. You've overcome that ego. Yeah, which is yeah. Uh, like when you say ego, I don't think of Jake. No, yeah, I think but, of Doctor Matt. Yeah, right. Of course. <laughs> but thank you for stopping by and sharing your story. Uh, you. For the uh, is it Spherion? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a website people could go to, or is it um, SphereonUtah.com? Okay, and just maybe if if you know somebody who's looking for a job, look them up. But we will get them in on the show. I'm excited to have them come in and say what they're doing and find out more about them. Uh, it's good to be back in studio with Doctor Matt. Good to have you back, buddy. I love getting the band back together. Always. Thank you for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. You think you spell Spheron with an S or a C? I, P-H? I don't know. Sphere? S-P-H. <laughs> <laughs> All the above. <laughs>